If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. This episode is brought to you by Twizzlers. Long day, late night, feeling a little bored. Twizzlers is the ultimate sidekick for any moment of the day, no matter what kind of day you're having. The perfect level of sweet and a fun excuse to sit back and relax. Unwind with Twizzlers. To buy now, visit hersheyland.com slash Twizzlers. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. Today you'll hear another lecture from my 2019 History Weekend event in Chester on an ingenious operation from the Second World War. The speaker is Simon Parkin, who's revealing the story behind his book A Game of Birds and Wolves. The book tells the story of a team that developed a battleship-like war game in order to crack German U-boat tactics at the height of the Battle of the Atlantic. So, yes... I'm going to talk to you about my uh, new book and the story therein. Uh, um, When I was a child, my brother and I spent our summer holidays at our grandparents' house in Devon. And uh, they loved board games uh, and had an old wooden chest that was uh, filled with them. One day, in amongst the boxes of Scrabble, Monopoly and uh, Bagatelle, we found a copy of Battleships. Now, this wasn't the plasticky tabletop version with which I'm sure you're all familiar, but a luxurious version of the game that was played out on a giant map that had to be spread across uh, the whole floor. Uh, We take turns to uh, throw the dice and manoeuvre our ships into opposing positions. And then at the press of a button on a destroyer, a small plastic disc would fire along the glossy board, a bit like a miniature hockey puck. Uh, If your aim was true, the disc would slot into a hole at the base of your target, and then through some toy maker's magic, the top of the ship would spring into the air, a bit like a cap rocketing from a shaken bottle of lemonade. My grandfather never spoke much about the war. I knew that he had been a merchant seaman, uh, but not when or where he had sailed or even if he had seen combat at sea. As such, I never put together why he might own this particular game or why he would often watch from the doorway as we played. A couple of years ago, I started working on a radio documentary for The New Yorker on wargaming. If you're not familiar, wargaming is a tool that's used by politicians, civil servants and the military to explore via the medium of dice rolls and play the potential effects of real world events. During the making of the radio programme, I visited the Defence Academy in Shrivenham and there I met a man called Major Tom Muat. Major Tom is essentially Her Majesty's Game Designer in Chief. 
uh, a kind of Dungeons and Dragons moderator who's dressed in khaki fatigues. He's designed and run war games everywhere from the Pentagon to Beijing. I asked Tom if he had an example of where something learned in the crucible of a war game had proven useful in the real world. He explained that the hotline that links the White House to the Kremlin, uh, which is often represented in films by a red telephone, was an idea that came out of war games that were played during the Cold War. Uh, the idea being that it would probably be useful on the eve of nuclear destruction for the uh, American president to be able to get hold of the Russian president without going through diplomatic channels. Then he mentioned a little-known story about a retired naval captain called Gilbert Roberts and a group of young women who invented a war game that radically changed the course of the Second World War. In the last week of 1941, Britain had come perilously close to defeat. The UK is, of course, an island nation reliant on imported goods for its resources. At that time, no less than 95% of Britain's fuel came into the country from trading partners and colonies, while 70% of its food supply was imported. In total, an average of 68 million tonnes of food and fuel was delivered by a 3,000-strong merchant shipping fleet. The sailors of these ships knew from the bitter experience of the First World War that the safest way to cross the Atlantic Ocean during wartime was to move in convoys, finding essentially safety in numbers. So they would gather in groups, sometimes uh, consisting of more than 60 vessels. They'd sail in tight formation. Now, the Royal Navy would send its warships to protect these flocks of boats, and the escorts, as these protector ships were known, encircled the convoy as it plodded heavy-laden course, exactly like sheepdogs protecting a herd, uh, ready to fend off any attacks. Even before the outbreak of the Second World War, Karl Dönitz, the leader of the U-boat arm of the German Navy, reasoned that if his fleet of submarines could block and sink that, that convoy of ships, Britain, an island unable to sustain its people without imports, would soon starve. In this way, hunger, the blunt, persistent tool of war, could be deployed against Germany's enemy from a position of remove. Dönitz had long believed that the most effective way to attack the British ships was to organise his U-boats into packs, like wolves hunting those sheep. It was a tactic that he had tentatively explored as captain of a U-boat in the First World War, just before he was captured by the British and sent to a, to a prisoner of war camp in Sheffield. Um, incidentally, uh, he managed to earn a prison transfer to a lunatic asylum when he was here, uh, after he pretended to be a U-boat, convincing his captors that he had lost his mind. Uh, the Rudel tactic, or wolf pack uh, tactic as it was known, was borrowed from the wolves of Dönitz's childhood fairy tales. Wolves, Dönitz knew, hunt cooperatively. By working as a pack, they bewilder and uh, run down prey that would be too large to um, tackle alone. Togetherness also affords the animals uh, the ability to care for wounded pack members without sacrificing momentum. What better way, he reasoned, for U-boats to hunt, not as loners picking off stragglers, but as an organised pack touring the sea with shared focus and intention, able to take down far stronger foes than they might otherwise. Now, the belief that if Britain's supply lines were broken, British defeat would soon follow was not limited to the Germans. Winston Churchill described the merchant shipping as at once the stranglehold and sole foundation of our war strategy. This fundamental truth was acknowledged in a chart that took up almost the entirety of a wall in the operations room at the Admiralty, the, Naval, the Navy's London headquarters. This graph, which charted the number of ships that had been sunk at sea, showed in the starkest terms imaginable the stakes at play. 
Its top quarter was divided by a thin red line that marked the narrow threshold between victory and defeat. If the rate of ship sinking stayed below the line, the British people could survive on the amount of food and fuel that was making it in. But if the graph exceeded the red line, however, the country could no longer continue to participate in the war. While Donitz was not given anywhere close to the 300 U-boats that he estimated via war games that he needed to blockade Britain, the embryonic Wolfpack attacks that began towards the end of 1940 immediately showed their effectiveness. In British shops, fish became scarce and expensive. Butter, bacon and sugar could only be bought with coupons and onions, which prior to the war were imported from Spain, France and the Channel Islands, vanished from greengrocers, as did lemons and bananas. The frequency and success of the U-boat attacks steadily climbed. By the end of 1940, the U-boats had sunk more than 1,200 ships, about five years' worth of construction work in typical peacetime conditions, more than the rest of the German Navy and Luftwaffe combined. The numbers told, if not the whole story of the Battle of the Atlantic, then the salient point, the British were losing catastrophically. Someone had to figure out what was making the U-boats so effective and what, if anything, might be done to upturn that success. Gilbert Roberts was a 41-year-old former naval commander who had been discharged from the Navy in 1937 following a bout of tuberculosis. After he recovered from illness, Roberts found himself a young retiree with neither a ship nor a purpose. He joined the Home Guard for a stint, then worked as a police officer in a Devon constabulary. Neither of these roles suited Roberts, who was a talented tactician and war game designer. He was a heroic man even before the arrival of war and its inevitable provocations towards courage. Once, while reading a book on a Cornish cliffside, Robert spied a group of walkers as they struggled to climb down from the mouth of a cave against the tides rushing. Robert's tripped over the hill, plunged into the water, and for more than an hour fought the waves to recover one of the sightseers. And then, in the early months of the war, Roberts was further tested by circumstance when, one night during the Blitz, he was sheltering in the basement of his South London accommodation, and he heard a thud on the ground above. He climbed the stairs, peeked through the window, and there in the white light of an overhead flare saw a bent, oily German bomb half buried in the pavement, its fuse still sparking. Roberts ran toward the danger and snatched out the fuse, burning his fingers badly in the process. In the last week of 1941, Roberts received an unexpected summon to the Admiralty offices. He was told to bring an overnight bag. And there he met two of the Navy's most senior officers, one of whom was an aide to Churchill. They described the true extent of Britain's ongoing losses in the Atlantic. That Britain had come so close to starvation had been deliberately kept from the British people. Um, Churchill would routinely exaggerate the number of U-boats that were lost in public speeches. For example, uh, at Mansion House on the 20th of January 1940, at a moment when British forces had sunk just nine of Germany's 57 operational U-boats, Churchill claimed to have sunk half the U-boats with which Germany had begun the war. To arrive at this conclusion, Churchill had added 16 U-boats to, to those that the Admiralty believed may have been sunk to the nine that they knew to have been sunk, and to this number, for good measure, he added a further 10 of his own imagining. As such, when Roberts told, was told the awful truth of the situation, he was astonished. He was then informed that because of his achievements in running war games prior to the war, he had been chosen to figure out the secret to the U-boat's success in the Atlantic. Robert's task was essentially threefold, to discover the secret of how the U-boats were operating, 
to develop effective counter um, measures, and finally to teach these new tactics, uh, whatever they were, to any and every captain who sailed the Atlantic. Tuberculosis may have robbed him of the chance to serve at sea, uh, but it had, in this unlikely way, provided him with an opportunity by which he could make his presence felt on every destroyer and corvette on the ocean. Before he left the Admiralty to catch the midnight train to Liverpool that night, Roberts was led into an office where he came face to face with Churchill, who barked to him, find out what is happening and sink the U-boats. Roberts arrived in Liverpool to a beleaguered city. Hitler would later admit that he targeted Liverpool with his bombers, precisely because he believed it housed the headquarters from which the Battle of the Atlantic was being orchestrated. His guess was correct. In fact, Derby House, which was home to this command centre, had already been successfully hit by German incendiaries, although the bombers wouldn't have known it. When Roberts arrived, he was informed that he would be given eight rooms on the top floor of the building. He could move in just as soon as the roof had been repaired. Roberts' first meeting with the commander-in-chief of Western Approaches, Sir Percy Noble, Noble, was a complete disaster. After dismissively asking what precisely Roberts planned to do with his games, Noble told him, well, you can carry on, but don't bother me with it, I'm busy. The next question was who precisely was going to assist Roberts in his work. And by 1942, most men who were able to serve in the Navy had been enlisted and deployed. And the Navy, in its desperation to find workers, turned to young women, advertising posts in the Wrens with the slogan, join the Wrens and free a man for the fleet. The Wrens' motto at the time was never at sea, a pledge that carries with it a sort of negative space assurance. We know our place. What other organisation, you have to wonder, has ever been defined by what its members are forbidden from doing rather than what they hope to achieve? But nevertheless, under the stewardship of Vera Lawton Matthews, a former activist for the suffragette movement, Wrens were gradually deployed to all manner of interesting and essential roles. Some became welders, others became carpenters, some loaded torpedoes onto submarines, and many plotted the progress of live sea, sea battles on maps, hung in operation rooms like the giant plot at Derby House. The Wrens' heroism often matched that of the men they had freed for duty. In 1942, for example, Pamela McGeorge was asked to deliver an important dispatch from one side of Plymouth to the commander-in-chief at the other. She drove her motorcycle through the night while the Luftwaffe dropped bombs on the city. When a bomb landed close to the road, McGeorge was blown from her bike. Its wheels were mangled beyond repair, and yet undeterred, she continued on foot to Admiralty House with the letter in her hand. On arrival, she offered to immediately head out again with the response. At Derby House, Roberts was introduced to the ten young Wrens, some of whom had only recently left school, who were to be his supporting team. They had been handpicked for their aptitude in mathematics and statistics. The first and most senior woman assigned to the team was Jean Laidlaw, an assiduous 21-year-old, obsessed with ships and sailing, who later became one of Britain's first female chartered accountants. Then there was Laura Jane Howes, who had come to England from Antigua just four years earlier. Howes was a, was a mathematical genius, and at school, when her teachers were off sick, she would teach the class maths in their stead. Elizabeth Drake was next. Drake's father, Charles, worked as an actuary for the Prudential Associate Assurance Company. And Drake was chosen to work with Roberts based on the assumption that an aptitude for mathematics, like height or temp temper, runs in the family. In fact, that, that happened a lot, as I'm sure you're aware. Nicholas Montserrat, who wrote the book 
the cruel sea. He was a freelance journalist at the outbreak of the war and uh, his father was quite a well-known surgeon. And so they said to him when he joined the RNVR, well, you can be the ship's surgeon then, as that's what your father does. <laughs> the last of the Wren officers was a sportswoman, Nancy Wales. Nan, as she was known to her friends, was older than the others at 27. She was a formidable tennis player, competed in badminton at county level, but hockey was her true passion. Two years later, she played for Lancashire, and then she earned the unique distinction of being the only player to go on to play for their arch-rivals Yorkshire, a team she captained for many years. The unit, which became known as the Western Approaches Tactical Unit, or WATU, was given the top floor of Derby House. As Robert's dismal first meeting with Sir Percy Noble had demonstrated, the unit was viewed with tremendous scepticism by many senior officers who wondered what these people were doing playing games while there was a war on. As such, Roberts and his team of wrens worked quietly in their top floor home, trying not to attract much attention till they had something concrete to bring to their superiors. Watu's office, as you can see here, resembled something between a school gymnasium and, thanks to the scattered sticks of chalk and tumbles of string laying around, a child's playroom. The linoleum floor was divided into lines, a bit like a giant chessboard. Each line was spaced 10 inches apart, representing one nautical mile, while the counters on the floor represented ships and surfaced German U-boats. Around the edges of the room stood great sheets of white canvas, they were arranged into enclosures a bit like voting booths, except each one had a peephole cut into it at eye level. The average visibility from the bridge of a warship is five miles, and the canvas sheets were positioned in such a way that when you looked through the slit, you could see the equivalent of a five-mile view of the tiny wooden ships on the floor. Linen sidewires, which could be bent to adjust visibility, depending on the game scenario that was being played, held the apertures open. Now, one team was positioned behind the canvas sheets at desks, and they played as the escort ship captains. And the other, which was usually captain, the other side, that is, was usually captained by Roberts or his right-hand woman, Jean Laidlaw, played as the U-boats. As in the real Battle of the Atlantic, each side's objective was focused on the prize of the convoy ships. The escorts had to protect them, while the U-boats had to attack them. And each side also had a secondary objective. For the escort ships, this was to sink as many U-boats as possible, while for the U-boats, the aim was to avoid detection and exit the battlefield unharmed. The convoy ships, which was the prize in play for both sides, would automatically plod on at each turn of the game towards their destination, while the battle raged around them just as at sea. Players were given two minutes in which to submit their orders for the next turn, which was designed to replicate the urgency of the real battlefield. The movements of the U-boats were drawn in green chalk on the floor, and the colour was chosen as it was impossible to make out against the floor's tint when viewed from an angle. This ensured that the U-boat positions were undetectable to the players who were looking through the canvas screens. The escort ship's movements would then be added to the floor in white chalk, which was, in contrast to the green markings, legible to those looking from the canvas. Turn by turn, the pieces would move around the floor as the escort ships dashed to the site of an explosion to drop their depth charges, and the U-boats performed their feints and dodges in an attempt to pick off convoy ships while evading the escort. The wrens acted as something like umpires, measuring distances, marking movements in chalk to ensure that the game played out as accurately as possible. And finally, at the end of the game, the players would come together, sit around the board, which was now crisscrossed with chalk markings, and Roberts would reveal how everyone had fared. The game was a simpl 
simplification of real U-boat action, of course, but there was enough here to begin staging recent sea battles. The objective was to experience the action from the perspective of the U-boats, and then from that knowledge to assess what the escort commanders might have done differently to save ships, supplies, and lives. With rudiments of the game in place, Robert spent a great deal of his time studying after-action reports written by naval officers who had battled U-boats and survived in search of clues to their tactics. His position at Derby House meant he was ideally suited to meet and quiz every naval officer who passed through Western approaches. Roberts did not have to rely solely on the rather staid written testimony of these sailors. He could also listen to their first-hand accounts, uh, interviewing men as they returned from sea. During the course of several interviews, a rather chaotic picture emerged. Not only was there no universal set of tactics with which to fight the U-boats, neither was there much training for how escort ships should work together as a team. The destroyers and corvettes, it seemed to Roberts, were broadly free to direct their response according to the captain's individual whim. Fred Osborne, who was first lieutenant of the corvette HMS Gentian and who later worked at Watu for a number of months, described convoy defence as difficult and haphazard in the absence of collective countermeasures. No clear doctrine for combating attacks on convoys has been formulated and taught, he wrote. As such, the losses are appalling. Roberts asked every escort captain he interviewed the same question. What do you do when one of your merchant ships is torpedoed? Now, some captains spoke of going to action stations, other about, others of increasing their speed. When pressed, however, most shrugged in resignation. What can you do, blind in the night, explosions sounding all around, when your radar operator is unable to distinguish the sound of a U-boat in the water from the noise of a choppy sea or even a shoal of fish? There was another reason why the naval escorts were having such an awful time hunting U-boats, and this was the incorrect assumption about the way in which U-boats were attacking. Roberts didn't know it yet, but his task in turning around Allied fortunes at sea would rest on his successfully spotting this cardinal error in the British understanding of how U-boats were operating. To understand this cardinal error, we need to meet this man, the 28-year-old Otto Kretschmer. He's the one sitting down celebrating. Uh, he was perhaps the most famous of uh, Germany's U-boat aces. The young U-boat commander was taciturn and focused. One of his nicknames was Silent Otto, but he inspired utter loyalty from his crew, many of whom were young men, barely out of school, much like the Wrens. Kretschmer's contribution to the U German U-boat strategy was profound. In the early months of war, U-boat captains would attack Allied ships from outside the boundary of the convoy. This was in part to abide by the recommendation of the manufacturers of the torpedoes, which advised ensuring a distance of no less than one kilometre between the U-boat and its target. There was also uncertainty about the effectiveness of British sonar detector, which was known as ASDIC at the time, and this led many U-boats to fire their torpedoes only from well outside the detection range of the escorts at a range of 3,000 metres or, or further. Kretschmer, however, wanted to see what would happen if he could slip past the escort ships, enter the lanes of the convoy, and fire from practically point-blank range. His motto was one ship, one torpedo, and the less distance between his U-boat and his target, the easier it would be to adhere to. Kretschmer first attempted the manoeuvre in September 1940. One night he slunk in between the escort ships in the cover of dark darkness on the surface of the water, thereby evading detection by the Allied sonar. 
And then, like a fox inside a hen house, he successfully sank three ships, firing torpedoes at pretty much point-blank range. When he returned to his U-boat base in the captured French port of Lorient later that month, Kretschmer wrote up his findings in a set of standing orders. The document laid out the rules for the efficient and successful running of a U-boat, a 12-point plan that covered everything from the need for an effective lookout to the requirement that the men set aside time for cleaning their dishes. Most of Kretschmer's instructions were commonsensical. Point nine, however, went specifically against the written advice that U-boat captains maintain a minimum distance of 1,000 metres from the U-boat and its target. Kretschmer countered plainly that at every given opportunity, torpedoes should be fired at extreme close range. This can only be done, he wrote, by penetrating the escort's anti-submarine screen and getting inside the convoy lanes. This, he added, should be the objective of all our attacks. In just two sentences, Kretschmer had outlined a tactic that would, in the months to come, lead to the deaths of thousands of Allied sailors and raise the line of the chart of shipping losses at the Admiralty in London, perilously close to the threshold of defeat. One of Watu's first tasks was to restage an actual battle from a few weeks earlier, in December 1941, in which the British ships had successfully hunted three U-boats. Roberts and his team believed that this, the battle for convoy HG-76, held the secrets they were searching for. The team arranged 48 ships in 12 columns on the floor, and then they added the tracks of the three U-boats that they knew to have participated in the battle, U-434, 574 and 131. The stage set, Roberts began to move the convoy, which spread across six white lines on the floor to represent its six-mile width. Each move was made in precisely the same pattern as the actual escort had a few weeks earlier. And blow by blow, Roberts imitated the action as per these official reports. Seeing the battle from a crow's nest perspective above the board, a question formed in his mind. If the U-boats were firing from outside the perimeter of the convoy, as was widely believed, how had HMS Anavor, which was at the centre of the convoy, been sunk? Might it be possible, he wondered, that the U-boat had attacked the ship from within the, the columns of the convoy. There was, he reasoned, a simple way to test his theory. Hold everything, he told his staff, as he rushed into his office to make a phone call. Roberts picked up the receiver and asked the operator to put him through to the flag officer's submarines in London, hoping to speak to its chief of staff, one of his old friends, Captain Ian McIntyre. To Roberts' astonishment, the flag officer himself, Admiral Sir Max Horton, picked up. Is Horton himself at Derby House. Now, Horton was an officer of foreboding distinction. As a young submarine commander, he had scored the first naval kill of the First World War. And on return to port, he was signaled success to cheering onlookers by flying the pirate's flag, the Jolly Roger, a tradition that continued thereafter till the end of the Falklands War. Horton's precocious talent as a submariner propelled him up the ranks. Years later, his biographer described him as the greatest authority on submarine warfare. On the phone, Roberts explained who he was and asked if Horton uh, might answer one of his questions. During the last war, Roberts asked, would you ever have crept among the ships of a convoy to fire one of your torpedoes? Of course, replied Horton. It is the only way of pressing home an attack. Thank you, sir, said Roberts, and then hung up. It was late, but Roberts asked Jean Laidlaw and one of the younger wrens, Janet O'Kell, if they might stay behind with him to reset the plot and run a new game on the giant board. The two women, who were infused with Roberts' excitement, agreed and hurriedly, hurriedly reset the game. 
This time, Roberts placed a U-boat model in the centre of the columns of the convoy and ran the events of the battle in reverse. If the range of its torpedoes was around two and a half miles, it was reasonable to imagine that U-boat captains would fire from less than half that distance in order to maximise their chances of scoring a hit. Between them, Roberts and the Wrens began to plot different scenarios that might have enabled the U-boat to sneak into the convoy without being detected. Only one checked out. The U-boat must have entered the columns of the convoy from astern, and it must have done so on the surface of the water, where it was able to travel at a slightly faster speed than the ships it pursued. By approaching from astern where the lookouts rarely checked, the U-boat would be able to slip inside the convoy undetected, fire at close range, and then submerge. Roberts and the Wrens headed to the kitchen to make coffee and a round of corned beef sandwiches. The conversation continued to centre on the battle they had left on the floor of the game room. And the group discussed how, if they were a U-boat captain, having made a point-blank range attack uh, on a merchant ship, they might attempt to escape unharmed. The game had enabled the fledgling tacticians to think like U-boat captains. And from that perspective, the answer suddenly seemed obvious. Having made your attack, you would, of course, dive, and then you would simply sit and wait for the convoy to roll on overhead. Eventually, Roberts concluded, I would emerge deep from the stern of the convoy. With Kretschmer's U-boat tactic abruptly unveiled, Roberts wanted to try out some potential countermeasures that might foil his plan. The team returned to the game room. Roberts assumed the role of the U-boat captain, and Laidlaw and O'Kell played as the escort ships. A countermeasure revealed itself immediately. Rather than splay out from the convoy at speed, dropping depth charges, as was current common practice, Laidlaw and O'Kell lined the escort ships up around the convoy, and while the convoy continued on its way, each escort performed a triangular sweep over its spot, listening out for U-boats on the Aztec. They immediately picked up the positions of the attackers in the game. With a mounting sense of excitement, the team ran, a proce- ran the procedure twice more. In both instances, Robert's U-boat was detected and sunk. It was by now the early hours of the morning, and in all the excitement, time had passed unnoticed. Roberts ordered a staff car to return the two women home. And then the next morning, he invited the sceptical Admiral Percy Noble to watch a demonstration of his findings. Noble entered the game room flanked by his staff. The commander-in-chief warily eyed the chalk markings on the floor, the canvas sheets decked out like ship portholes. What was all this make-believe nonsense? Undeterred, undeterred, Roberts began to explain their discoveries, how the U-boats would slip between the convoy ships on the surface of the water at night when they were unlikely to be spotted, how they would make their attacks and then dive to wait until the danger had passed. The atmosphere was frosty, Noble had made no secret of his condescending scepticism towards Swatu's work. Roberts detected a tone in Noble's manner of snootiness, as he put it. How could this former naval officer, with his nubs of chalk and jumbles of string, contribute anything to the battles being waged at sea? But as the game played, the Admiral began to sit forward in his chair in astonishment. One of the wrens playing as a U-boat fired a torpedo from within the convoy's columns and then dove. Roberts performed the team's newly developed counter-tactic, moving the escort ships in these triangular sweeping patterns designed to flush out the U-boat. While performing the sweeps, one of the escort ships picked up the German position on its radar. And as he watched, Noble saw, for the first time, the cardinal errors that had been responsible for such tremendous loss of life at sea. When the demonstration was finished, the Admiral stood to his feet 
and congratulated Roberts. Then he asked what the manoeuvre was to be called. Laidlaw, the 21-year-old woman who was responsible for statistical analysis, explained that she had christened it Raspberry. It was, she said, a rouse of contempt aimed at Hitler and his U-boat fleet. Raspberry was a revolutionary tactic and its effect on the war at sea was immediate. Shortly after the demonstration to Noble, Watu began running week-long courses for naval officers who would play imaginary battles and learn how to perform the counter-tactics, which soon included a variety of other operations, each named after a different fruit. For the officers playing as escort commanders behind the canvas peepholes, the games were keenly intense. The pressure of the two-minute intervals between turns mimicked the stress of action against U-boats at sea. Each officer would often be caught up in the fiction, no longer viewing the chalk lines and the wooden models as game pieces, but as the real ships, wakes and explosions that they represented. The game occupied this unusual position between reality and make-believe. No limbs or lives were lost here on the linoleum ocean, but neither was the game fully abstracted in the way that Monopoly is based on, but distinct from the property business, for example. For the men who played Watu's game, who had often returned from sea just a few days earlier and, were, and who were often due to sail again in a few days' time, the game had an unsettling quality. The choices that were made on the floor reflected an officer's current tactical thinking. If his ship was lost in the game, he had to cope with the knowledge that had the same situation arisen at sea and he acted in the same way. He may well have died. Make your mistakes here, you won't make them at sea, Roberts was fond of saying, a euphemistic way of pointing out the scale of risk against which the game was attempting to ensure its players. For all Roberts' engaging presentation, a man who failed to drive off the U-boat, or worse, who lost his ship in the game, would leave Watu feeling sternly chastened. We destroy U-boats out in the oceans, wrote one observer who sat in on a round of the game, with the death sentences delivered miles away in the Assize Court in that old building erected on the banks of the River Mersey. Each course, which lasted from Monday to Saturday and which ran weekly without interruption from the first week of February 1942 to the last week of July 1945, involved up to 50 officers at once. It consisted of four game scenarios, which each varied details such as weather conditions, visibility, time of day, and the size, speed, and start point of the convoy. Finally, when the game finished, the officers would step from behind the canvas screens and, along with the wrens, sit in a square of chairs, which you can see here. And then with a 10-foot wooden pole, Roberts would co commentate on the preceding battle, uh, blow by blow, like a sports pundit delivering a post-match verdict. He would draw attention to moments of partic particular brilliance and moments of particular disaster and the turning points of each battle. And these summations were, for Roberts, the most enjoyable aspect of his work. He relished the opportunity to recreate a picture of the battle that was much more vivid and engaging than the reports written by officers returning from action at sea. As we listened to him, he made the most difficult situation appear simple, said Vice Admiral Gilbert Stevenson of Roberts Flair. He appreciated the difficulty that hundreds of commanding officers had in deciding what to do when faced with the surprises that war at sea was constantly presenting. He taught them how to meet these surprises till they were ready for anything. Still, the combination of ministration and expertise was not always welcomed by the experienced officers who were on the receiving end of advice from the Wrens. Often the men would resent being told what to do, no matter how gently, by young women barely out of school, 
and who, in most cases, had never been to sea in peacetime, let alone during a war. During one 1942 game, Bob Winnie, who captained the destroyer HMS Wanderer, in which he sank three U-boats, handed his chit to one of the Wrens, Judy de Vivier, a particularly clued-up girl, as he described her, uh, who he had been assigned. No, sir, said Judy, of Winnie's chosen move. I do not think you should do that. Good God, he later recalled thinking of her firm plight request. What on earth do you know about it? But so confident and tactful was de Vivier's tone that Winnie chose to hear her out. He listened to the Wren's convincing explanation in astonishment. From his perspective, a battle-worn captain was being tutored on the finer points of U-boat warfare by an inexperienced young woman. For Roberts, this particular exchange vindicated his long-held belief that with careful design, games had the capacity to make experts of amateurs and to instill in players invaluable, potentially life-saving, battle-winning expertise. In the summer of 1942, Escort ships sank four times as many U-boats as the previous month, beginning an upward trend that would continue for the rest of the year. In the months that followed the development and deploy of Raspberry, using information gleaned via debriefs, Roberts and the Wrens developed numerous other manoeuvres to suit the expanding variety of Wolfpack attacks. Most of these manoeuvres, which involved the escort ships performing different shapes and varieties of coordinated sweeps to find and hunt lurking U-boats, were given the memorable names such as pineapple, gooseberry, strawberry, artichoke, and there was a modification to the original manoeuvre that was known as a half raspberry. (laughs) The unit revolutionised British anti-submarine warfare. By the summer of 1943, the U-boats had been decisively driven from the Atlantic. During the period that the Germans subsequently dubbed Black May, the German Navy lost 41 U-boats, many to Watu-coined operations. It was a decisive tally on this, the impersonal score sheet of war. Karl Dönitz, by now the Grand Admiral of the German Navy, who never lost his first love for U-boats or the young men who crewed them, ordered the withdrawal of wolf packs from the Atlantic battlefield. It was, he urged at the time, merely a temporary partial change of operations area. But four months later, the US Admiral Ernest King downgraded the U-boats to the category of problem rather than menace. In the 17 weeks that followed the 17th of May 1943, the Allies sailed 62 east and westbound convoys along the North Atlantic routes without losing a single ship to a U-boat. More than 12 million tonnes of food and supplies arrived unimpeded into Britain from eastbound convoys. Seizing the opportunity, senior officers at the Admiralty increased the size of convoys, which by June 1943 averaged 62 merchant ships compared to just 43 the previous month. Between the first week of February 1942 and the last of July 1945, when Watu officially closed, close to 5,000 naval officers played the war game run by Captain Roberts and the Wrens during more than 130 courses. Graduates included the ornithologist and painter Peter Scott, remembered by one of the Watu Wrens for drawing ducks all over his navigational chart and also a young Philip Mountbatten, future husband to Queen Elizabeth II, whose presence around the unit brought many of the Wrens unending delight, as one of them put it. There was also the writer Nicholas Montserrat, who would go on to describe in his 1951 novel, The Cruel Sea, a convoy game played out with model ships on the floor of an empty room, clearly based on his experience at Watu. In addition to the thousands of British naval officers who completed the course, 
Roberts and the Wrens trained delegates from everywhere from the United States to India, Malaya and Norway, as well as four university professors. Many graduates of the game credited the battles that they waged on the linoleum floor as being instrumental in their subsequent victories during encounters with U-boats at sea. Similar tactical units sprang up across the empire, some of which also were also staffed by young Wrens, who, by playing the game time and time again, also became experts in anti-submarine warfare. By 1945, a total of 66 Wrens had completed the course to become staff at Watu, or its sister units. 2,603 merchant ships and 175 of the escorting naval vessels were sunk in the Battle of the Atlantic, which was the longest continuous military campaign in the Second World War. More than 30,000 merchant seamen and more than 6,000 Royal Naval sailors died in the Atlantic during the war, many in, many in attacks by U-boats. It was an astonishing loss of life, tempered by the work of the men and women of Watu and the sailors who deployed their tactics at sea. At war's end, Sir Max Horton, the Commander-in-Chief of Western Approaches, who had been defeated in the game by two of Watu's wrens, sent the following personal signal directed to all who served in the unit, an incandescent tribute to their quiet, momentous achievement. On the closing down of Watu, I wish to express my gratitude and high appreciation of the magnificent work of Captain Roberts and his staff, which has contributed in no small measure to the final defeat of Germany. Later, Churchill famously wrote, the only thing that ever really frightened him during the war was the U-boat peril. Without Roberts and the Wrens' work, the Battle of the Atlantic may well have been lost, perhaps the war with it. Four weeks after the U-boats retreated from the Atlantic, my grandfather, who was 17 years old at the time, made his inaugural journey across the ocean in a merchant ship protected by naval officers trained by Watu. Thanks in major part to Watu's work, he arrived in New York untouched. Many of those involved in Watu's work never spoke of their, their role in the war. While the group's feat and contribution is barely remembered, by the fall of Berlin in 1945, the U-boat commanders were, in fact, intimately familiar with Roberts, his team, and their tactics. Roberts, who spoke fluent German, was one of the first British officers um, to land in Germany following Nazi surrender. He was in Berlin the night the Americans performed their final bombing raid of the war. And the following day, Roberts eagerly travelled to the U-boat headquarters in the German town of Flensburg. There he met the veteran submarine commander and architect of the Wolfpack, the man who later that week would become Hitler's successor as president of Germany, Admiral Karl Dönitz. The men exchanged respectful salutes, and then the other U-boat captains, however, appeared to blanch at the sight of Roberts. Their fear was soon explained as Roberts began his tour of the U-boat facility. He visited the operations room, and there, enlarged and tacked to a wall, he saw his photograph taken from a magazine article published the previous year. Beneath the image, a handwritten caption, this is your enemy, Captain Roberts, director of anti-U-boat tactics. <laughs> Games are usually dismissed as childish pursuits, something to be set down in adolescence and maybe picked up again in retirement. But as Major Tom explained to me in Shrivenham, in times of great turmoil, war games rise in popularity and importance. That was true in 1942, and as office rooms in the Pentagon and Whitehall resound with the rattle of dice, is equally true today. Thanks. That was Simon Parkin. This episode is brought to you by Twizzlers. Long day, late night, feeling a little bored. 
Twizzlers is the ultimate sidekick for any moment of the day, no matter what kind of day you're having. The perfect level of sweet and a fun excuse to sit back and relax. Unwind with Twizzlers. To buy now, visit Hersheyland.com slash Twizzlers. A Game of Birds and Wolves is out now, published by Scepter. If you want to hear more about secret operations of the Second World War, I recently spoke to Helen Fry about the secret agency MI9. You can find that in our podcast feed by just searching for Helen Fry. Thanks for listening. This podcast is produced by Ben Hewitt and Jack Bateman. Join us again tomorrow when I'll be asking Paul Edmondson everything you wanted to know about Shakespeare. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.